had in my mind that I'm going to build wealth. And so, yeah, when I got there, kind of looked around and concluded real estate was the way to go. And really, I had a number of factors. One was volatility, especially after 2009, seeing everything quickly evaporates. My parents, they had lost a bunch in the tech bubble. Growing up, that was really impactful because that was their kind of nest egg. And so I just, I wanted something that wasn't prone to evaporate when I needed it and something I could safely build long-term wealth while I you know, continued kind of working my W-2. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. I'm your host as always, Yona Weiss. Beautiful day. Excited to be here with another amazing guest, Michael Gilman. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Yona, thanks for having me on. Doing great. Awesome. Well, I'm excited. It's not every day we get someone of your caliber on the podcast. You know, everyone has a different investing background. You're in real estate, which is the common denominator, pretty much every single guest we've ever had on the show. Michael, for you guys who don't know, he is the founder of Cross Mountain Capital, which is a real estate company that buys multifamily properties mainly. But I'm excited to hear what else you got going on. I know you have a little bit of a different route to the multifamily world, right? Coming from investment banking and securities law and all that kind of good stuff. So I'd love to hear how you got out of what a lot of people call the rat race and went full-time into real estate. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Just kind of starting out, you know, growing up, my parents kind of always pushed me to be either a doctor or a lawyer. I graduated from a liberal arts school to really know what I wanted to do. I did like investing, but I don't want to say my parents kind of forced me to law school because that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Ends up going to law school for, for, for kind of thought, thought it was a good path, but I was always investment minded. And so my first job out of law school was uh, in-house at Bank America. This was about 2009, after the financial collapse, they had just swallowed Merrill Lynch. So there was a lot going on and just an ex- you know, exciting time to be on the street because of, there was a big change afoot. Right. And so, you know, I, I started out and primarily with the goal of actually trying to make it to the business side. And so I developed some relationships, did some rotations in the business line, obviously investment banking, trading, you know, equities, bonds, futures, what have you. And kind of looked around and came to the conclusion that the the safest path to build wealth was, was real estate. That's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to build wealth. You know, well, my parents were from the Ukraine, kind of came here. You know, only child, middle class background. They were you know working class. So always, you know, I, I had in my mind that I'm going to build wealth. And so yeah, you know, when I got there, kind of looked around and concluded real estate was the way to go. And really, I, I had a number of factors. One was volatility especially after 2009, seeing how everything quickly evaporates. Yeah. My parents, they had lost a bunch in the tech bubble. That was, you know, growing up, that was really impactful because that was their kind of nest egg. Right. And so I just, I wanted something that wasn't prone to evaporate when I needed it and something I could safely build long-term wealth while I, you know, continued kind of working my W-2. And so I thought cash flowing real estate was one of the safest, really the safest asset. And okay. as you know, of course, combined sure. with tax benefits, I really, I saw no, no equal to it. So, you know, the ability to use other people's money, the leverage, the tax benefits, the lack of volatility and just finite supply. You know, one thing I learned on Wall Street is there's just this shocking amount of capital out there, but there's also, uh, there, there's always a scarcity of good product. 
good, real product, at, you know, kind of fundamental values. And so, you know, that's why you had things like the CDO that led to Merrill's collapse in 2008, 2009. But anyway, so that's when I started investing, started buying uh, safe cash flowing stuff. I was in New York. So my investment at that time took me to uh, New England, where I found it was a really sleepy market. No, no buyers, uh, stuff, you could get stuff on the MLS at a 10 cap plus heavy value add just mom and pop stuff. And the market really appealed to me. I was a big outdoors person, loved going up there. So one day I, I just a property hit my filter. It was a 20 unit. It penciled out unbelievably. And I went for it. That was my first investment. Very cool. I leveraged that one about 95%. And that's what got me started. But I'll kind of pause there. Yeah, <laughs> that was, that's a lot. Lots to unpack. No, I mean, but the bottom line is that you found real estate. And I think you summed it up really well, kind of in there, in the mix of what you were describing there in your journey, you kind of summed up that real estate, you know, it's not volatile, there's tax benefits, it's a way to build wealth and all those different factors that really, there's almost nothing else like that in the world, but yet so few people actually find that. And move and migrate into that space and especially you know moving full time i mean was it challenging for you and at what point were you able to really is the question move into this full time because you know, a lot of people are thinking well i need to figure out a way and rich dad poor dad talked about this a lot like how do you have your your assets cover right the cash flow from your assets cover your expenses etc and then that's true wealth but i mean at what point were you able to do that and, and leave a you know a high paying job to go full time into real estate? Yeah, great question. So yeah, and so like and you know in that mentality, the rich dad, poor dad. That's how I started out. Let me build a cash flow portfolio that can replace my salary, and especially I was focusing on cash flow because I had a W two. I couldn't do you know any kind of quick repositioning strategy or, or anything too advanced that was required a lot of oversight and management. Right. So, you know, starting out was tough. Of course, we, you know, we, we had to build out our own infrastructure from day one because I quickly found there was no, in that market that there's just a lack of, you know, professional companies. It's kind of like a frontier market, definitely where we invest. I mean, certainly you have Burlington, which is more developed, but also way more expensive. Uh, but where we invest Southern and Central, it's really like a frontier market, I would say. So we just built that from scratch. So that was tough. My uh, wife at the time, we were still dating, but she was a huge help in just kind of handling the admin property management side of it. Oh, cool. And so I started, I bought a few, but then I stopped. And I stopped for a few years because our third property I bought was a headache. It was, and it wasn't really anything you could discern from underwriting. It was like, the, I don't want to say the building was cursed, but you know, it was just that property that some, something's going wrong. Like every single time, like whether it was the roof hatch that flew off during a storm or wow. the, the boiler system, just constant problems with the mechanicals. Anyway, just huge headaches. So that kind of put a stop to it for actually a few years because I thought to myself, you know, I don't want to deal with these headaches. You right. know, at the end of the day, what am I doing? I'm cobbling up these properties. And like, you know, here, here I am sitting on Wall Street, people are doing $100 million deals and I'm out in Vermont, you know, buying these little properties. Like, well, you know, what am I doing? So I kind of put a pause to it for, for two years. And then, you know, kind of my career was expanding and I was shifting it more towards real estate. And then I started, like I'd say, after two years, I started buying again. We I sold, building that was giving me a headache. So all right, let's restart. Let's and get rid of it and start over. Yeah, we're gonna do start this faster. Fresh. 
let's not let then it wasn't like I made money on it, but it was just I should have parted with it sooner. But so anyway, I parted with it and bought up some more units and then COVID hit. And now by this time I had transitioned my career. I was at a startup, I was doing legal, but I was also managing a pretty large real estate portfolio. And so, you know, a combination of things happened. One was I was at a startup and I saw how really relatively easy it was to raise money in the venture capital space, at least at the time. And Mm so, you know, I was sitting there, I was like, you know, all these funds are just plowing money into these companies and there's a low chance of success, right? right? Uh, A lot of these are not going to merge. And not that I'm commenting on, on, you know, where I was or anything, but just, you know, looking at like how speculative the VC space was compared to the track record I had already built up just with my cash flowing stuff. When you impute an IRR and kind of the returns there, it was like, well, it's going to be, it should be really easy to raise capital. And then I started following bigger pockets more and, you know, the, it's, all those podcasts out there. And, you know, what's funny is even though I was on, uh, you know, I grew up on Wall Street and securities attorney, I'd say I learned in the business, at least the syndication side and just from, you know, third party books and That's podcasts. Awesome. That's amazing. Which, which is pretty right. It's funny. <laughs> you don't even have to go to summer school right. <laughs> or, or, or school here. So that, so that, so COVID hit, you know, and, and the feds, you know, the fed dropped race to zero. And so that was to me, that was the big signal because I had seen this, you know, cycle before. Right. I, I, and, um, we can get into it later in terms of impactful books. But one of the things I learned was you, if you want to time the market, you know, one of the key things is follow the Fed. So the, the, the Fed's easing, especially this unprecedented quantity, there's just going to be mass asset inflation. Right. So that's when I levered up, I cashed out everything I had, pulled suck money out of everything and just started buying things, buying in Vermont. I started pooling capital and buying in Colorado. So Colorado was a new market. Um, we entered two years ago. I had been watching it for a long time. But anyway, before I start, like, let me pause there because again, yeah. I find myself talking a lot. Yeah, no, it's great. There's it's a lot, a lot there. But I think, you know, you really talked about a lot of things, especially in terms of timing the market. I mean, that's a huge thing. And that's something that most people don't have the experience in and don't realize what that even means. But having, I guess, having that experience that you went through beforehand and knowing the cycles and learning that. But I do want to go back to something you were talking about, the VC yeah. space and, and how easy it was, you know, people, VCs, venture capital raising hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. You know, it's, it's just crazy on these projected returns that most of the time never play out. But, you know, everyone, and they're really hoping for those unicorns, right? Everyone. So it's, it's really, I'll invest, you know, in 50 different deals and, and one will be one, hopefully, will be you know a unicorn right and so it all makes sense when i when i when i spread out all the spreadsheets right whereas when you're talking about finding every single deal to be you know at least a base hit but many home runs just because you know the cash flow and real estate just has that track record have you found success you know reaching out to those same venture capitalists to raise capital i mean are they interested in real estate or is it just two completely different worlds yeah. So, you know, I'd say some would be in a personal level, right? But in terms of their fund, right, that's not their mandate. And so they're not going to look at real estate deals. And, you know, they might invest, you know, for their own per- personal wealth or right. whatnot, but that's just not the mandate. As you said, right, the strategy is you're, you're going to hit a home run and it's going to make up more than make up for all the losers and eclipse any kind of real estate return you'll ever have, right? That's the theory. So, and yeah, it's certainly that those home runs happen. But, crazy. but you haven't been able to tap into any of those markets for, for again, it's like, so we, right. It's a we different, 
Yeah, you know, we deal with kind of institutional capital, but that's they specific, that's what they specifically invest in. They invest in right. value add deals in the regions. So you have to really you have to be really buy box sensitive, and certainly we could get into raising capital from from those folks. But, yeah, um, absolutely, and I'd, I'd love to hear because I know you've done a lot of kind of creative deals, and and specifically, I'm really interested in you do a lot of kind of portfolios of small multifamilies, right? Like scooping yeah. them scooping them all up. Which is which yeah. is something that you know if you add them all up together, it's like you know a great deal, especially if you have the property management located. But most people are looking at, I'd say, syndicators, hundred unit plus, two hundred unit plus units, and I think there's a huge space that's just being overlooked. So how do you how do you feel about that? Obviously, you're buying them up. Like, what's your view on that? Sure. So that's a strategy we're primarily using in New England, just because there's nothing larger, which, which is you know aggregating portfolios. Of course, we we would prefer to get one portfolio seller, but from time to time, we'll we'll, we'll try to sweep the market, you know, through our relationships and the phones and, and put together a, a deal. Because again, this is really small stuff, so it's hard to put a deal together, and it's very painful. It's laborious. You know, you're talking about nine different closings but the just the individual deals are so juicy out there you know we're starting at eight, eight ten caps plus with heavy heavy value add that it's tough to pass up and especially because i grew up in that market where we're, we're vertically integrated there we've got our own management and construction that we're still doing those the smaller deals and we've actually migrated now to doing larger portfolio deals in colorado at, at larger larger sizes but just getting back to that comment on or just the question about portfolios yeah and, you know why we love them it's just gives you so much flexibility in terms of what you can do and how you generate returns. You can improve all the assets. Some of them you keep, some of them you sell immediately and just kind of optimize situation. So I find that there it's much easier to exceed your pro forma on those because you just have so many levers to pull and so many different properties. Right. And, and variables, they, a lot of variables there. And they, they could just be really rewarding to investors when you get that unprojected early sale and, and return of capital. For sure. And you know, that's, that's true. Obviously, it depends on the market, and you're absolutely right. Like New England, you're in Vermont, right? There's that's what there is. That you know, you yeah. don't have these you know 200 unit workforce housing properties there. You just don't. You'll have you know a four unit and a six unit and a ten unit, and and you just gotta work with what you have. But uh, there's no reason why you can't put together you know 120 unit deal out of a mix of all these little properties and and get it done. It's you just you have to be. It's painful. <laughs> It's, you know, you're talking about, we do because we do an individual model for each one. So you do the individual model and you do the roll up. I mean, forget there's the brain damage, (laughs) right? If the journey wasn't difficult, the destination wouldn't be rewarding. Well, that's certainly true. And entrepreneurship in general is not an easy thing, but running your own vertically integrated company where you're maximizing, you know, the returns for your investors, it's hard work. You got to put in the reps. It's not passive for you. It may be passive for the investors, but they get to go align for the ride. For sure. So I'd love to for you to go back for a minute. You were talking about before some creative strategies or creative ways to find or to finance or to find deals. Sure, sure. So just taking my first deal, for example, right? I levered that 95%. So how did I do that? And I could have done it 100%, but just felt like you needed to have some... But isn't that really risky as, you know, to be just play the devil's advocate there? Yeah, it is. But like, it depends on what you're buying and what, you know, what your cash flows are. So the way I look at it, let's say my cost of capital, my debt, let's say it blended, it's a five cap. I'm buying a fully occupied cash flowing property with upside on the forced appreciation at a 10 cap. 
That's a 500 basis point spread. So let's say you're borrowing a million dollars, right? Right there, you're making 50,000 out of kind of thin air. Just out of thin air, just like that. And so that's why on you know high cap rate, cash flow, fully occupied stuff, I, I'm comfortable taking that, that leverage because you just have that massive cushion. And so on, you know, for just taking this example, commercial bank came with, I think it was uh, 70% leverage Mm -hmm. and uh, had a home equity line of credit that I tapped for the majority of the balance. Gotcha. And that's what got me started there. And the cash flow was, was surely, you know, greatly exceeding the debt service, right? Yeah, for sure. And then you improve the property and then that that debt service becomes less and less over time. And then you refi and pull some cash out and buy some more. That's the, you know, that's the secret of, of real estate, right? The the cash out refi. 100%. Uh, knock on wood, let's hope it's never taxed or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because it, it's, it's tax-free. And I think this is one secret for our listeners who aren't really familiar with this concept of cash out refinances. You can literally pull out because the bank will reappraise the property once you've added value, once you've brought the rents up, once you've it has appreciated, and you can pull out the cash from the property with the refinance and all of that cash that you're pulling out is tax-free. And you can basically pay off investors if you want to, if that's your model, and just literally hold the property for forever. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so yeah, so you know, obviously maximum leverage is an easy one. Of course, you think of seller financing, if you get them to carry a note, that, that's a common one. Repurchase options, I'd, I'd say that's a little less common. So as an example, let's say you have a property that, that, that's valued at 100000 Mm-hmm. You give some. You, you give someone, let's say, uh, eighty thousand to buy it, and give them the option to repurchase it for, say, eighty five thousand in, in, in the future. Let's say you go to a lender; they're looking at it, and say, a commercial lender, hard money lender. From their perspective, you're collateralized. They're collateralized already. Uh, you know, they're they're lending at eighty percent, so you can get a hundred percent from the lender there. And so you write the option to the, and so you're giving the the seller cash and an option, a contractual, right? A, a contract that has value. It's an option to buy. And so it has value because you're you're buying a hundred thousand dollar property at discount, right? Let's say in this example, 85,000. So without like getting into any kind of advanced math, let's just say the embedded value there of that contract is 15,000. So there's an example where you borrowed a hundred percent indirectly kind of, and, and done a creative deal. You could use various structures in the capital stack, pref equity, right, which is right below your debt, and it's paid out ahead of regular equity, of standard common equity. Mm-hmm. And so those are some really common ways to leverage, and of course, other people's money, friends, family. Yeah, of course. Abby. <laughs> and you're doing a lot of that, right? I mean, that's the way you can scale. <laughs> right. And so, right, I mean, that's the, you know the fundamental problem you run into when you really try to expand this. Because I was going at a steady clip, I didn't really have to think about where where is my money going to come from because it was just steady. But if you know, once I decided to expand and scale, that's where you really have to start think, thinking about it because you're going to do one two deals, but then you're out of liquidity. How are you going to fulfill that say ten percent GP requirement, right? Because on a syndication, at least when you're starting out, and certainly before you have a track record, mm-hmm. it's going to be really tough to get get away with doing a deal and not putting in ten percent. I mean, it's, it, not that it's impossible because it's all just based on relationships and lenders, but you know, you, you're going to have to earn that right to put in less. Uh, yeah. That's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. And to be honest, I always look to make sure that the GPs are putting in their own capital into the deal, right? Because number one, it just allows you, you're absolutely right in the fact that if you build a track record, you build that credibility over time, 
for sure. It's much more easy to go by. But, you know, on the other hand, you always want there to be skin in the game, not just their time and their equity and all that kind of stuff. But actually, you know, do you believe in this deal as much as we do, right? Are you willing to put up your own money into this? And I think that's a really important part of the process. Absolutely. Well, Michael, time absolutely flies here. And we could go on for hours on any one of the topics that we already talked about. But unfortunately, I try to keep this at half an hour. I hope our listeners like that. But we'll have to have you back and maybe do a little follow-up on on some of these topics. But I'd love to transition to what we call now the final four. These are four questions that I ask all my guests. For you, the first one is, what is the worst job that you ever had? You know, I'd have to say it was probably working. I was a legal intern at a little like three-person law firm, and it was just miserable. Before, before that, I'd worked at, at bigger law firms where it was pretty miserable in terms of hours, but at least everyone was getting highly paid. But here, like it was the quality of the work was less. The hours were just as bad, but the attorneys were miserable because they weren't paid as much. And it was just a place, you know, and, you know, I'd say I learned from that how just, you know, it's important if, you're, if your employee is not happy, they're not going to do good work. It's just simple. And that's what we try to, and our company always align that with, with equity incentives and, you know, put people where we largely work remotely, most of our staff. And so to be able to put that kind of trust in someone, you need to kind of empower them to feel like a business owner and a producer almost and have a stake in the game. Right. And so that's what we, all our employees, you know, we have equity incentive programs and oh, that's uh, awesome. I think it's key that someone is, if you, you know, can see a direct correspondence between their effort and their the result. And that's awesome. I think that's really important. That's huge. And I can obviously see why that internship was not a good a good one because you're absolutely right you have to be if employees are not happy something's really wrong with the situation second question what's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift and i think you alluded to this earlier yeah and so i, I was going to mention that one or another one but so the, the book and i don't remember the author but it's called timing the market and i read it back in college i would do a lot of day trading in college <laughs> so i made a lot lost a lot but it looked at the cycles, you know, through a longer perspective, but really the value I took away was just, but she overlaid, you know, the Fed charts, so the easing cycles with the stock market. And it was just the correlation. I was just shocked at how so much she was in by action. Wow. wow. Okay. So just pulled it up here. Timing the market by Deborah Weir or Weir. There we go. W-E-I-R. And then we'll put that in the show notes. That sounds like something that, you know, people... Should, should learn about. It's something, it's an important part of economics and understanding how the stock market works. So, and interest rates in general. So definitely put that in the show notes, add that to the book list. And third question is, what is a skill or talent that you would like to learn? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd say it's to be more more handy, be able to fix things, a little construction, kind of like my GCs. And my, my wife was here, she'd say I'm useless around the house. So I, you know, I wish I was more handy. I'm always, I'm always kind of in my head. That's all right. It's good. It's also okay to hire people to do that for you and kind of stuff. But no, I totally get that. It's good to be good with your hands. Fourth and final question, what does success mean to you? Yeah. And, you know, so there, so there I'd say it and kind of going to traditional teachings, certainly in Judaism and, you know, most religions of living a fulfilling life, you know, you're contributing your community, your family, raising kids that that'll contribute to the community and right. Giving more than you're receiving. That's the big one. 100%. This is huge, you know, fundamentals 
Absolutely. And, you know, giving more than you're receiving is absolutely a fundamental of success. Love that. Love all those principles and uh, appreciate, appreciate you sharing with us today. And lastly, where can our listeners find you or reach out to you if they want to? Sure. So the primary social media I use is in so, uh, Mike Gilman or otherwise shoot me an email, Mike at crossmountaincapital.com. And of course, check out our website, crossmountaincapital.com, where you can sign up for our distribution list and look at our case studies and what we have going on. And we've got some awesome, awesome deals coming in the pipeline and awesome deals coming up. So everyone should check that out. Excited to be a part of that as well, personally. So thank you for being a good steward thus far. And thank you again for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to uh, the deal you're in and just uh, this podcast. So thank you. And, you know, it's funny, you know, we got in contact, I reached out to you because I was never big on social media, but you were like the first person when I started poking around in real estate, just blowing up my LinkedIn feed. And I'm like, (laughs) how does this guy do it? Right. This guy's a marketing guru. Uh, Like I was at, you know, being at a startup, we were close, like marketing was a huge thing. And so, you know, just your ability to get on top of the LinkedIn feed there was remarkable. Yeah, I appreciate that. It still surprises me today, but there's obviously a method to the madness and it's been well, it's done us well. So thank God, happy to keep it going and teach other people how to do it. But you know, I appreciate you, appreciate everything you do as well. And I appreciate our listeners. Finally, you guys are what makes this show happen the most. So thank you again for tuning in once again. And remember the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I wanna ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating or review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I wanna hear from you guys. So I wanna hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.